Amen. Thank you for leading us in a time of worship, celebrating the goodness of God. Well, I want us to take some, uh, some time to, uh, to pray together, and uh, let's do that. Oh Lord, you are indeed the God who is truly good. No one, Lord, is good from the inside out like you. And of all the wonders, Lord, of creation, your character is the greatest wonder of all. Lord, I want to pray this morning for uh, the bread ministry, new ministry starting up. Lord, I pray that it would be a time of, uh, of building connections, of community building and communion building. For Lord, you have made all of this life as a great signpost pointing to you and bread that sustains us, Lord, points as well, Lord, ultimately to the bread of life. Lord Jesus, you came and you said, I am the bread of life. And Lord, sometimes it is hard to accept a gift that is truly free, that is undeserving. And yet, Lord, it was for the joy set before you that you endured the cross that you might restore all things, put back together lives, Lord, that were like Humpty Dumpty, seemed impossible to put the pieces back together. And Lord, sometimes we feel like that. And yet you are the God um, who knows exactly how to put us, how to restore all things as we follow your lead and your guide. Lord, we also, I want to pray for we will be uh, housing the homeless here in the month of November, and we're going to be hearing more about that in the coming weeks. And yet, Lord, it is another opportunity that you give us, Lord, to, to demonstrate, Lord, to others your love and concern for them. Lord, it is hard to feel unwanted and unloved. Lord, who of us would not feel destitute and utterly broken by that? And yet, Lord... You are the God who loves us, and you want us to, to be your hands and feet, to be your body in the world, to be carrying on the ministry and the message, Lord, that Jesus, that you gave us. And so, Lord, we pray already in advance for, for volunteers, Lord, that will come forward, for the people, Lord, that we will have the opportunity to serve and to interact with. And, Lord, sometimes we think it is we who have everything to give, and, Lord, often it is a story that they have as well, something to share with us. And Lord, may, may there be a sharing of gifts that we might, uh, Lord, each be changed and transformed more into the likeness of your Son through the opportunities that you give us. Amen. Do you ever wish you could trade places with someone? Sometimes I know it's a long lineup in Costco and you wish I could trade places with the person at the front. Maybe it's trading places in life, and you think, oh, I'd like to trade places. You know, we have a phrase in English, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence, right? Which means, but that doesn't mean that it really is greener on the other side. Or maybe the grass is greener, and the house is nicer. But maybe it's like a Hollywood set, we're probably not seeing the whole picture. 
I remember growing up, I had a good elementary school friend by the name of Lee. And sometimes Lee would come over to my place and sometimes we would go over to his place and I liked going over to Lee's place because he had more stuff. Really fun stuff that I could only dream of. And there's things about Lee's life that I really envied. And it only, but it took many years later before I realized that what I had, he didn't and wished he had a mom and dad that actually lived with him, with us. Siblings who loved me. I wish someone had taken the time to sit me down and explain to me, Dave, you're richer than you think. When the Apostle Peter sat down to write his pastoral letter to Christians scattered across the five provinces in the Roman Empire, he knew the conditions that they were finding themselves in were unenviable and unsettling. As a result of their public commitment to follow Jesus Christ, many of them had become marginalized socially and maligned verbally by family, friends, and neighbors. And Peter acknowledges, he says, that many of you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. It was easy to see what they had lost. They had lost often reputation, status, security. And it was easy to miss what they had gained. And in the opening section of his letter, Peter takes time to remind them, you are richer than you think. Let's open to 1 Peter. If you want to find 1 Peter, turn to the very end of your Bible. Revelation, then Jude, then the little letters of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And before that, then you'll find Peter somewhere near the end. So 1 Peter, chapter 1. I want to read verses 3 to 12. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. 
Even angels long to look into these things. Well, often in the Apostle Paul's letters, of which there are many, he uses the traditional thanksgiving section in, in a letter in that form to praise and thank God and to introduce the main themes that he will be, you know, bringing forward in the rest of his letter. And Peter is doing the same kind of thing, introducing this main theme of joy and hope in the midst of trials and suffering. But Peter says a lot more than that in his opening section, doesn't he? As one commentator put it, Peter is so full of ideas at this point, he produced a complicated set of reasons for praising God. Complicated in part because in the original language in Greek, that whole section that I read is one sentence. You can do these things in Greek. It, uh, they kind of have to follow along with the grammar. So it's not easy to trace the line of thought. In situations like this, I often find it helps to simplify what is being said, to zero in on the main points by what I call outlining the passage. So I can sort out the, uh, the main thread from then the elaborations. So I give you a sample here. So in verses 3 to 4, see that? It's not there. Huh. Okay. You're sure it's not there? I really needed that. Okay. Well, that's not going to work. Okay. Well, basically, if you were to look at those first... There we go. That's what I was looking for. Thank you. Thank you so much. See? Ariel was saying about if they weren't working back there, we couldn't see it. This is exactly illustrated. So you see the verse, verses 3 and 4. What I mean outlining is you just write that first phrase, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in his great mercy, well, God, it fits there, so under there, he has given us new birth. And then it goes into, what else has he given us? A living hope. And then it goes through, and I just left all the long you know, uh, description. And what else has he given us? An inheritance. So if you just take those underlined sections, the next slide, that those two sentences boil down to, well, praise God who has given us new birth, a living hope, and an inheritance. And then we will have some more elaboration on each of those, but it kind of boils it down. So having described the recipients of this letter back in, in verse 2 that we looked at last week, remember they're God's chosen people, saved by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now Peter proceeds to lead them in praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus for this great salvation. Their salvation, he says, was the result, their great salvation was the result of great mercy. And we wonder, how big or great is this mercy? With my grandson, we have a little game. His name is Daniel, and we say, how big is Daniel? And he does, so big, <laughs> okay? Right? And I was thinking of that. How, how great is God's mercy? It's so great, Peter says. And then he just goes along with the, so think of him holding up his hands, I think. You know, he's given us a new birth, a living hope and an eternal inheritance. Take that new birth, for example. 
In chapter 1, verse 23, he will say how this took place, how this takes place. Jesus will also talk about it in John chapter 3. But here Peter says, For you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Jesus had a parable about the sower and the seed. This message of God, the word of God comes and it's kind of like a seed and it, it, it lands in our hearts and it begins to take root and grow in us. And some amazing transformation begins to take place as the life of God now begins to take root in us because we have opened our lives to him. And that's what he says, this new birth. It is like you're a brand new person. And with this new life comes a new identity. Before you were outsiders, now you say we're God's children. He'll say in verse 14 and, and later on in the letter. And, and you have a new hope. Your life before was a, like a dead-end street. And it's not so much that believers are now always full of hope, although we, we have hope, but that we now have a fixed hope. Hope that is immovable. A clear and true vision of what God will do in the future. It's not a mirage-like hope, you know, that, you, that you know, has lacks any solid foundation. And so Peter calls it a living hope. It's not a dead one. Hope in the Bible is not kind of hope-so kind of hope. You know, somebody asked, do you think you'll pass the test? Oh, I hope so. Doesn't sound very confident, does it? No. This is solid, living hope because it is rooted and grounded in what? Now we get the details through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where this hope is rooted and why it's so solid and why it is so great. And because of Jesus' resurrection, we also have the hope of our own resurrection. That life, that resurrection life of Jesus is what begins to take root in us. And what this living hope does in the face of great suffering and loss is to sustain us and help us fix our eyes on that what is coming, what is eternal. Paul will say our light and momentary troubles. And if you know in, in Paul and Corinthians, then he gives a list of troubles. You know, he was left for dead, beaten to death. And he calls them light and momentary. Why? Because in the view of what this eternal hope is, it is light and momentary. And then he will say, and you've been given an everlasting inheritance. You see, our new resurrection body, when we get that, will come with an imperishable inheritance. And then he says, remember, it, it can't perish, spoil, or fade. It's kept and secure in the, in the safest of all places. You ever have anyone say, put this in safekeeping? You try to put it in the safest place that you can think of, right? Or we have an investment and we, you know, they call it financial securities. And then it fluctuates a lot and we feel like that doesn't seem very secure. No, this is, this is the safest. And this is especially, think about the context. This is especially good news. Peter called them exiles, okay? Who have lost much of their earthly status and securities. And what Peter is saying, 
helps put and keep things in perspective. Well, we might wonder, you know, there's a lot of talk about the future. What about in the meantime, Peter? And Peter says to them that through their faith, they are present, shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. The same God who keeps our inheritance secure with him is also the one who keeps us, his children, secure during our time on earth. I was reminded of of Jesus' words in John chapter 17. This is the prayer that Jesus is praying for his followers because he's going back to heaven. But he says, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. And in Luke 22, Simon is going to go through a really challenging time. And he's Simon Peter, Simon. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. He will crash, but and after you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. The keeping power. You see, some people assume that once they put their faith in Christ and follow him, he will keep them free from all harm, all trouble. Does God shield us from all harm? (laughs) Yeah. No. And we have the story of Job in the Bible, you know, so like a really big book. And then here, all we need to do is look at verse 6, right? Because they've gone through in a little what troubles and griefs of all kind. And relatively speaking, our troubles and trials can't hold a candle to the greatness of our salvation, past, present, or future. In all this, Peter says, that is, in the salvation that is ready to be revealed in all of its fullness in the last time, the greatness that we see already is just a partial, it's even better. In, in all this, you greatly rejoice. You know, unfortunately, often we're tempted to find our joy in so many other things in this world, which is why we feel as if our lives are on a continuous roller coaster. As commentator Juan Sanchez notes, you see, when our joy is rooted in financial security, it will rise and fall on the amount of money that we have at the present time. When our joy is rooted in a particular relationship, it will rise and fall on the basis of how that, resp- how that person responds to us. Oh, she didn't even look at me. Oh, he, he called me across the room. When our joy is rooted in present circumstances, it will rise on the basis of whether or not we are having a good or bad day. You know what? There is a far better, more stable, more joyful way to live than rooting our joy in the world. When our joy is rooted in God himself, in his acceptance of us, in the victory he has achieved for us through Christ, in an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, then it will buoy us up in all of the fluctuations of life. I call it life preservers, right? In a storm, what do you, you know, a life preserver, because it will keep you up even in the midst of all of those waves. 
So Peter does not deny that suffering causes real distress and grief. His call to rejoice greatly does not deny the reality of suffering, but it reminds us that a joy rooted in the permanent one and in permanent things is sustainable and therefore sustains us in the midst of real grief. Um, this week in our, in our community group, one of the questions I asked, you know, uh, what was one of your, or is one of your favorite songs? And I actually thought about that later, and I thought, no, the one I said, the Veggie Tales song, isn't my favorite. <laughs> That's a fun song. <laughs> it is well with my soul. That is my favorite song. When trials come, I can say it is well with my soul. Why? Because the captain of my soul is in charge. And having a joy like this makes us rich indeed. But there is more, Peter says. When we are rooted in God, the trials themselves are put to good and greater use by him. Indeed, Peter says in verse 7, in the purposes of God, the trials accomplish something positive for our faith. They may feel really negative, but they're actually accomplishing something positive for our faith. Trials, said one writer, are the sandpaper God uses to finish us. I like that. Peter uses a much more intense metaphor, right? A refiner's fire. But the point is similar. The end result is better than before. More precious, even he says, than refined gold. God, so God does not promise to keep us from all harm, but to keep us in and through it, so that, he says, the effect of the grief, the distress, the trials, produces positive results, so that we are refined by the trials, not ruined by them. A faith that has been tested and purified by the fire of trials is more precious because it is shown to be real, genuine, authentic. It's when something is put to the test. I'm reminded when Jesus sends out the 72 of his disciples and he says, you know, I've given you power, you know, to heal diseases, you know, and to even overcome, you know, demons. And, uh, and when they come back, they're like, Jesus, you wouldn't believe what we were able to do. Exactly what you said. Their experience so far exceeded because now they knew this is real, Jesus. The power that we've seen you and the authority that you gave us to carry on your ministry, it's real. And when we discover that our faith, when it gets put to the test that we really trust God, that there can really be joy in the midst of trials, that really gives a boost. And as we faithfully persevere and endure through trials, we can see that our faith is real. And so can others. And be drawn to put their faith in him too. I think it's one of the reasons why God often lets his people go through trials. So that people can see the difference between having faith and trust in God and not. Enduring faith, Peter says, will ultimately result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed at his second coming. 
And if you want a preview of the future, just read the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, and it gives a window on how glorious and enriching our worship and our enjoyment of God will be. Back 1 Peter 8, chapter 1, verse 8, Peter gives an example of how their faith works in this tension that we have between the already of faith and the not yet. Though you have not seen him in the past, yet your love for him in the present is very real. And though you do not see him now in the present, you believe in him and are already filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. How can this be? After all, Peter, now he had seen Jesus. He had walked and talked with him during his three years of ministry on earth. Peter, in fact, was one of the three who even were eyewitnesses of his majesty there on the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus was suddenly kind of like unveiled and they saw the heavenly glory that had been cloaked for much of his earthly ministry. But few, if any, of the believers to whom Peter is writing had ever seen Jesus, let alone walked and talked with him, and yet their love for Jesus was just as real as Peter's as was the glorious joy that he gave them. It's not all future. It's also in the present. I can remember as a teenager, I was thinking about this. As a teenager, when I came to put my faith in Jesus, I was surprised by the inexpressible and glorious joy that I felt, that I experienced. I felt like I would burst inside. Just God... You are so amazing. And then, as I was thinking about that, I also thought, do I experience joy that is inexpressible and glorious today? And I thought, not like I could. I was reminded of there's a phrase in Galatians. Paul is writing to them, and he he says in chapter 4, what happened to all your joy? You've been growing, you were you're farther along in the faith and it seems like your joy has been diminishing. Something has gone wrong here. So I was uh, with my wife Elaine. She plays the piano when we go to visit her mom at Menno Home out in Abbotsford. And uh, we were doing that yesterday singing and it started just with us and pretty soon there was a whole little choir that had gathered. And as we were singing a song day by day, it's called, but as we were singing, one of these gentlemen, these these people, most of them are, you know, cannot get around or they're not fully in their right minds anymore. And yet one of them, as we were singing, he just raises his hands with this look of delight on his face and prays to God. And I thought he's filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. What griefs and trials are you facing right now? If you have trusted in Christ, God is with you and is at work in your life. He will not waste what you are going through, even if you can't see at the moment the good that he is wanting to bring about through it. And maybe you're at the point, if you need a glimpse, God, I'd like to know, you know, 
how anything good can come out of this, ask him at least to give you a glimpse then, a little window. I remember being uh, a, a really discouraging time in ministry, and I thought, God, I've been investing my life into this for years. Is it making any difference? There had been some real failures happening, and I thought, and then that week, God gave me a little window into one person's life that had been changed. And I sensed them saying, is that worth it? <laughs> and, I, and I was like, oh, yeah. And then I sensed them saying, then trust me. I can see things you can't. Trust me. So maybe you're at that point in, in where you're at that stage in his life. I, just our God, just ask him for a little window at least. I'm sure it would blow our minds if he showed us everything, but a little window. And in the final verses of this section, Peter gives one more reason for them to rejoice in this great salvation. Their present experience of salvation, the already, is actually the fulfillment of what the prophets had foretold. You see, this salvation has roots. He says they go way deep back into their pre-Christian history. So while on the one hand they are living where, at a time when they have to suffer trials and griefs of all kinds, an unenviable situation. But on the other hand, they and we are living in a time that God's people in previous generations desperately wish they could experience. And why? Because we are living in a time of fulfillment. Whereas they were only living in the time of promise. Now, living in a time of promise is often really good. I think about Advent. I think about Advent because we were doing some Christmas planning. I know it's way in advance. But, you know, and I was thinking about Advent, and I was thinking as a kid, and the Christmas catalog would come in November. And... And then in December, presents would begin to appear under the tree, you know, and there would be searching and shaking intently with the greatest of care, to borrow Peter's phrases. But living in the time of fulfillment, Christmas Day was far better, right? And the prophets were trying to figure out the time and circumstance to which the Spirit of Christ was pointing, Peter says. But notice the Spirit was pointing and predicting both the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. The suffering had to precede the glory for the Messiah and for us. But they saw that the glory would surpass and outlast the suffering like it will for his followers. And the prophets realized that what the Spirit was saying was not going to be fulfilled in their lifetime, but they wrote it down for those who one day would experience it. And it's as if the prophets and angels are seeing you experience what they could only dream of. And you know what they're saying? I hope they know how good they have it. They are richer than they think. Friends, we live in a privileged time and experience a privileged salvation that is so great. We may think it would be amazing to trade places with an angel 
to see what they see, to do what they do, to know what they know. Yet while the scriptures tell us that the angels are able to appreciate salvation and rejoice in heaven when one sinner, even on earth, repents, they can never experience God's salvation in the way that we can. They do not know what it's like to experience the relief, the joy, the freedom, the forgiveness, the wonder of being saved by God's amazing grace. But you do. Or you can if you too put your faith and trust in Christ. Are you ready to? As the worship team is coming up, I invite you then to pray with open hands. St. Augustine said, God is often wanting to give us good things, but our hands are too full to receive it. Sometimes we have to let go of things. And so with open hands, maybe this is for the first time, or maybe it's the time of recommitment. Let us pray. Oh, gracious Lord, in your great mercy, you have given and offered such a great salvation. We want to open ourselves anew to you today to appreciate the wonder of what you have done, to experience the inexpressible and glorious joy that you give us, that you offer by your Spirit, acceptance, forgiveness, and hope, a living hope, Lord. Lord, may we not just keep this joy and this great salvation to ourselves. Lord, give us an opportunity to share it also with others. Amen. That's a good prayer to take with us this week. King of heaven, come. Just before I give a benediction, just a reminder that if you would like prayer, to have somebody else come alongside you and say, King of heaven, come. Uh, Pastor Yosef will be available here up at the, on your right-hand side, up at the front, to, and he would love to pray with you, I know, after the service. And uh, benediction from Jude, very short book in the Bible, but great, ends great. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.